just get right down to business. The Joe Robert Show. This, this is The Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. Today, we're going to hit the Ukraine self-custody sanctions and what is our market thoughts. Back again with us today, Justin Green. Thanks for coming back on and, uh, you know, give us some highlights of what's happening. Well, I think everyone right now is mostly watching what's happening with the Ukraine-Russia conflict. I mean, you know, how can you not just be totally glued to this? And as someone in the crypto industry, it's a very interesting perspective to have because we're really seeing how crypto behaves under these adverse situations. Um, you know, I think my my basically my entire crypto Twitter feed for the last week has been all about Ukraine. You know, you don't hear any more about this new project coming out or this NFT drop. It's just everyone is all eyes on Ukraine. Um, and I think that's a very positive sign. It's kind of like the world coming together to help Ukraine. And the crypto community has always been a very inclusive and and, and world-focused community. Um, so this is really crypto's time to shine and, and to really show that it, how it can help and how um, you know everyday citizens under these adversity conditions can use crypto. So we're obviously seeing uh, uh, people in Ukraine use crypto and, and also in Russia use crypto to try to um, get out of these collapsing currencies. You know, there's been reports of people buying a lot of uh, Bitcoin on like local Bitcoins and stuff like that in, in Russia. Uh, and there's also been um, reports of Ukrainians using crypto for local commerce. Um, you know, they they basically have this situation where their internet is unreliable and businesses aren't able to open because of obviously the the Russian troops invading. Um, so if you go to uh, a store and you want to make a visa transaction or something like that, you might not be able to do it. But what's interesting is as long as these people have a cell phone connection, you know, they've got their, their 5G or they probably don't have 5G there yet, but, <laughs> you know, they have their, they have their 3G, um, LTE, things like that. So uh, as long as they've got a cellular connection or a smartphone, they can continue to use their crypto and use that as local commerce. Um, they can also use the nice Starlink Wi-Fi hotspots that Elon Musk shipped over there. So as long as they have a clear view of the sky, they can use that to get satellite internet and uh, use their crypto. So I think we're going to continue to see crypto offering a helping hand to Ukraine's, Ukrainian people and, and for also Russian citizens under the, the oppressive, oppressive regime over there. And then we also are seeing the Ukrainian government to use crypto for fundraising. And I think this is probably one of the biggest stories of the week, uh, if not one of the biggest stories in crypto history. The Ukrainian government has raised, as of today, around $40 million from cryptocurrency donations. And, and I myself donated a little bit of Ether to them. Um, but this really shows the power of crypto to fundraise in record time. I mean, if they had tried to do this through the banking system or, you know, God forbid people ship commodities or anything, anything like that over to Ukraine, it would take a lot longer for them to get that money. But with crypto, in the span of 24 hours, they're able to raise tens of millions of dollars. They also, to make it a little more juicy, they announced, and this is the, the vice prime minister of Ukraine who, who is announcing this on Twitter, 
uh, that they were going to do an airdrop to donors. And there, it wasn't really clear, you know, how that's going to work. Some sort of token they would create that has, you know, a, a historic value or sort of like a, you know, a meme coin kind of thing. It's not, obviously not going to be like a DAO or anything like that. But uh, they, they, all, they, this morning they walked back on that and they said, actually, we're not going to do an airdrop. We're going to do something with NFTs. So they might be, you know, airdropping NFTs to, to donors or something like that. Um, I don't think anyone is really that upset about it. You know, it's like, whatever. You donated for a cause, not for the, <laughs> the token. I'm, I'm sure that in the midst of what they have going on, it probably shouldn't necessarily be the top priority of uh, giving back an NFT at this time, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they've got bigger things to worry about. You know, they need, they need to not let Kiev fall first before they issue NFTs. Uh, but... It's a very interesting circumstance. I think this is like the first time we can really say a country has issued like a war bond on a blockchain because that's essentially what it is. They're they're raising money for this war, um, and they're not necessarily promising to pay back a debt, but they're giving something of value back to donors either through the the airdrop or the the NFT drop. So this I think is just a, an incredible story of of crypto shining through the darkness and really offering a, an incredible use case to a, a very adverse circumstance. And this is really what crypto was designed to do. It was designed to thrive under adversity and provide financial services to people uninter uninterrupted despite artillery shells raining down on you, right? Like this is the, the cockroach of finance. This is meant to survive through all of this. Yeah, I mean, this is very interesting to see this all unfolding. And uh, I mean, repeatedly over the last year or two, the crypto community has pulled together to raise capital to execute on different things. And as we move forward, a little bit of the conversation we're seeing coming out of the SEC is them questioning these NFT offerings and whether or not they are really being marketed as a fundraising mechanism or if they're actually selling something of ownership or it's like a real digital art and what I guess the ultimate goal of that group is. So I think that will be tested over time, at least uh, probably through the remainder of this year as they look into that more. Now, I think it's less of a concern when there's fundraising that is impacting or outside of the US jurisdiction because they kind of implied a little bit through the BlockFi fine that they were more concerned about the US and the US citizens than they were about customers outside this region. What is your thought there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's only going to get more restrictive and a, and a pain in the butt as, as time goes on from the SEC. I mean, you know, it's a government agency. It's slow to move, but it's moving in the direction of issuing fines and, you know, finger wags to people, fundraising in, in, in any sort of way using crypto technology. And I think the problem is that there's not clear regulations on, on how to do it right and so it kind of gives the SEC free reign to just interpret it however they want. You know, they don't have uh, really public opinion into this. You know, there's no public feedback. There's no elected officials that you can hold accountable for this. It's just the career bureaucrats at the SEC and the appointed officials that are making these decisions. Um, so, I mean, it, it just kind of looks like we're going to have to bear down for a while and uh, let this you know, mudslinging go on into the crypto community. I don't think it's a good thing. I think that the SEC is harming Americans' ability to innovate and to fundraise for innovative ideas. Um, 
but you know they're going to do what they know how to do, which is to to send out these nasty letters and and give fines to people for doing anything that looks kind of like they're issuing a security. Um, so you know, unfortunately, that's the way it is until we can actually prod our regulators to give clarity on this through through some sort of new law or ideally an entirely new regulatory body. It's not the SEC. That's people who know crypto and can actually come up with sane regulations for it. We're seeing over there, or at least hearing a lot of maybe seizing or freezing of certain Russian authorities or people's assets, and maybe they're moving money into Bitcoin. Do you think that's maybe a consideration of what could be happening at all? Definitely. That that seems to be a big narrative going on right now is how Russians and you know mainly the the Russian oligarchs and the the ruling class are potentially using crypto to avoid the sanctions. Now, I don't think this is happening to any appreciable degree because the crypto market is just not big enough to absorb the kind of money they would need to be moving. And, you know, maybe you could get a few billion dollars through the crypto market with, you know, a, a small amount of uh, mixing and, and moving funds around and trying to, you know, uh, keep it on the DL. But, you know, you do need to have some technical prowess to do that. And then when you, that money comes out the other end, someone is still ultimately showing up in person to buy something, right? I mean, if, if a Russian oligarch is going to buy another Italian villa, there is going to be someone showing up at the end of the day to buy this Italian villa, villa and there are going to be questions asked, like, where did this money come from? You know, and, and so there's just a lot of like meat space problems here for, for the actual money to flow through into tangible goods. I mean, yeah, they could just buy Bitcoin and sit on it, I guess. But what good is that really going to do them? I mean, I mean, the ultimate point of this stuff is to be a currency. So you want to use it at some point and you know, the sanctions are still effective on crypto because the sanctions go on the businesses and the individuals that are doing the commerce. So it doesn't matter if someone shows up to your, uh, your Italian villa for sale with a Bitcoin wallet or if they show up with a bag of gold. Either way, there are going to be checks on that buyer. And if there are concerns, you know, don't let it go through because you might be liable for, for sanctions avoidance. So, I mean, all, the, all these people making a fuss about crypto being used to avoid sanctions. I think it's really missing the point here. The point is that the Russian citizens themselves are going to be able to save themselves from financial ruin. The oligarchs are really just not going to be able to use this to any appreciable degree. And that trade-off there, I think, is what we really have to focus on. That We want to help the, the common man. We don't really want to help the oligarchs, obviously. Because uh, those are the ones that are, you know, precipitating this war. Um, but we want to offer a, a, a helping hand to the Russian people, and this is how we do it. I mean, you think this just backs up what everyone's been saying for years about not your keys, not your crypto, right? And do you think that these governments uh, demonstrating this in this situation is is kind of showing everybody that you should actually store your own crypto yourself? Yes, this definitely bolsters bolsters the case for that. There's been a number of uh, exchange CEOs like from uh, Kraken and uh, Coinbase and, and Binance. Um, they've all come out and said things to this effect recently that if you have concerns about 
sanctions or getting your, your money frozen, you really shouldn't have them on exchanges to begin with. And, and we have seen orders from governments, uh, both in, in relation to this war and also recently uh, the Canadian protests um, to exchanges to freeze customer accounts. Um, and then there's, there's been some concern about blanket orders like freeze all Russian national citizens accounts. I think the Binance CEO uh, said he's not going to do that despite uh, some suggestions from government officials. Um, and so this is really another, you know, home run for the, the not your keys, not your coins crowd that if you have any concern at all, even a small probability of your funds getting frozen on an exchange, it's really not that hard to get a hardware wallet, get a secure uh, uh, crypto storage solution and just withdraw your money from the exchange and, and, and keep it yourself. Um, you know, obviously you don't want to screw that up and, and, and lose your uh, passphrase or anything like that. So, you know, you do need to do a little homework before you self-custody, but millions of people are doing it right now and it's not that big of a deal. So, you know, and, and if your coins are on an exchange, they, they can still get hacked, right? Hackers can log into your account, they can get your password, they can get your 2FA and they can steal your money out of it. So it, you're really not making that much of a change in terms of uh, you know, the likelihood of shooting yourself in the foot. So if you have any concern at all about funds being frozen from your government, even if, even if you don't have you know, relations to, to Russians or, or anything like that, um, this is a good time to, to remind yourself to do that. You think five years out, we're going to be looking back as these few events were kind of the stepping stones for actual more mass adoption across the world with Bitcoin. Yeah, I think this is definitely one of the inflection points in that. Um, there's just so much awareness that is building around the, uh, the financial freedom and the ability to use your money under these adverse economic conditions. Um, and also the ability to fundraise to a, for a cause, right? Like we see a lot of disconnect between what governments think people should fundraise for and what the citizens want to fundraise for. Um, and so I think this is a, a perfect use case for that. The wheels of adoption keep turning despite the fact that we are minus 50% from the highs and there's a lot of crazy macroeconomic stuff going on. Um, all these people that are that are waking up to what crypto allows you to do and how it really allows you to have self-sovereignty of your finances, um, you know, that is one of the biggest drivers of adoption. A lot of people obviously are in the market, you know, right now. It's kind of been trending sideways, right? And uh, people have been booing, we'll say, Bitcoin a little bit more, thinking it's kind of like this dinosaur, you know, orange, whatever, right? I mean, do you think at this point, this is actually the, one of the best times to be accumulating Bitcoin, uh, you know, in this type of market sentiment looking out a few years from now? Yeah, I would say, I would say it's a pretty good time for that relative to, to other times. I mean, in the last bull cycle or really the last like two uh, cycles, uh, Bitcoin has lagged some of the altcoins that have a lot more fundamental growth going on, like Ethereum and some of these other L1s and some of the, the DeFi tokens. Um, you've just seen incredible growth in that technology. But Bitcoin has always traded on this currency narrative that it's going to be a, a world currency or, 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 or a global store of value, digital gold type of thing. And in order for that narrative to progress, 
we want to see things like a, a country like El Salvador uh, adopting it as a store of value and, and corporations putting their treasuries in it uh, and people around the world using it as an alternative to the banking system. So I think relative to other times in crypto's history, um, this is a very bullish time for Bitcoin. Now, personally, I don't know how long this narrative can last because crypto is just such a fast moving industry that we could see competitors to Bitcoin come up and, and generate a lot of growth and really rival Bitcoin's uh, network effects in, in a short amount of time. So, you know, Bitcoin really has this technical debt problem that is just not really innovating. It kind of is static and uh, it's, it's got a lot of problems that need fixing. Arguably, proof of work needs to go and they need to move to proof of stake. Um, so, you know, I don't know how long this sort of ideological armor that Bitcoin has, you know, with Bitcoin maximalists and things like that can, can last. But certainly for the time being, Bitcoin is the best and most liquid crypto asset for this store of value digital gold use case. And that is seeing just so much growth right now with all of the uh, uh, political, geopolitical events going on. Now, for those that obviously may not want to be all in on the market right now, or they're waiting for these events to play out across the world, I'm sure they're all looking for yield and looking to DeFi in certain areas. And you know, one that sticks out is obviously Luna when they kind of were projecting 20%. I mean, how should investors look at the risk factors there and what to look for? Yeah, so um, the the Luna and and the Anchor protocol uh, that is currently offering a very attractive yield, right? We've got something like twenty percent APY on your uh, your UST, you know, your your, your US Terra stable coins, um, and, and the Luna token has been on an absolute tear. It's one of the best performing assets over the last year in crypto, um, and, and you know, I think it's had a a, a fair um, performance in the the recent drawdown. So there's a lot of bullish catalysts for, for, for Luna and um, for, for UST uh, uh, farmers, people that are they're staking their UST and getting that yield, they've done very well also over the last year. I mean, that yield has consistently been one of the best ones in DeFi for sure. But that doesn't come without its risks. And I think that there are too many people that are not heeding the risks at play here um, with how UST is designed and how that peg is supposed to hold. The whole system kind of relies on the price of Luna continuing to go up. And, you know, at least for the next couple of years, there are some headwinds in, in macro and in crypto in general that potentially invalidate that. And if we go into a protracted bear market, uh, it's just going to potentially cause a crisis in that peg. Um, and then everyone who was staking getting this 20% APY, they're going to head for the exit. And all of a sudden, you're going to have this mass redeeming of UST into Luna, and then those people selling Luna to try to you know, play, get out of this game of hot potato. And uh, I think that was some of, some of the uh, concerns that the developers and the managers of, of Luna had when they raised those funds recently, the, the 500 million or, or, or around that that they raised, um, that money for the most part went into reserves to continue to pay the 20% APY to UST holders. Uh, 
So, you know, again, this is basically they're just selling Luna for UST and then paying out that uh, interest. And as we've seen with other DeFi protocols, um, when you have a yield that's based on essentially your governance token or your L1 token that's getting paid out, that creates selling pressure and it causes worse drawdowns in bear markets. And then the yields also just collapse um, because of that, that rate being based on the token. So it's going to be difficult for Terra to maintain that interest going forward. And they're also going to have to very carefully juggle this risk of a bank run on the system. So if you are farming this, I do hope that you have some sort of insurance. Um, I, think they're, I think they will let you buy a uh, insurance either from Nexus or, or I think, uh, uh, I can't remember the, the, the project that's doing it, but there is an insurance that you can buy against uh, smart contract failure and also peg failure. Now it will lower your APY a bit, but I think it is worth it because when you get something like this that everyone is just piling onto without being aware of the risks, uh, that tends to mean that there's some existential threat to the system that could really cause havoc at any moment. And so I would just urge caution that this 20% APY, uh, you need to tame your expectations a little bit because there is risk there that you do actually lose your principle that you put in. Basically, don't go all in. <laughs> don't, don't go all in. You know, it's funny because I was at a coffee shop the other day and I just overheard some people talking about uh, Luna and, and Anchor and getting this 20% APY. And they were, you know, they were saying things like, wow, if I just put in X amount of money and I just continue to get 20% every year, you know, I can pay off my mortgage. I can pay this off. Like, it seems just an amazing opportunity. And it's one of those things, you know, it, it sounds too good to be true. And it kind of, it kind of... <laughs> It kind of is too good to be true, right? You can't maintain this interest rate forever. Um, you know, if, if some big fund comes in and puts in a few billion dollars into the system, that's obviously going to take that uh, rate down and it's going to deplete the reserves. And if the price of Luna, you know, it doesn't keep going up, then that's also going to deplete the reserves. So, you know, it's just, it's just sort of a fragile system. And I think when it comes to uh, competitiveness against other stable coins out there, I don't think it's the best one. I think there are a number of other stable coins, particularly the, the hybrid algorithmic stable coins like uh, Frax, or, or recently there was another one called, called uh, UXP. Some of these ones that have really innovative designs that allow them to scale very efficiently and not have to rely on locking up a ton of capital. Um, you know, I think, I think some of that stuff is going to potentially grab a lot of market share, whereas UST, um, it's just kind of got this you know, half rate stability mechanism that has a lot of existential risks built in. And it sort of depends on a, on a bull market being sustained. So, um, you know, I, I just think that they're going to have to innovate themselves out of this hole or there's going to be some massive collapse of the system eventually. I mean, what do you think is actually going behind? Like, why, why wouldn't they vote to reduce it now? And maybe why are they keeping it still at 20%? And you know what are the what are the thoughts behind all these protocols that are offering these teaser rates or these higher interest rates up front, will, which will ultimately compress, where you have a certain amount of users that you know are just going to run around to the highest yield anyway. So, what do you see as like the benefit of that initial APR to attract those users? Yeah, I mean, 
like you said, there there are a bunch of fair weather friends that will just go to the highest yield, no matter what it is, you know, despite all the risks, you're just going to get a lot of money pouring in. Uh, some of that is, you know, ironically going to be the BlockFi's of the world that, you know, have their degen farming division. Um, but uh, yeah, you're going to get a lot of capital coming in, but it's it's not going to stay unless you have some sort of incentives there. And in the case of Luna, I'm not sure they have the right incentives to keep capital there for the long term. What I would like to see is some sort of bonding, staking with lockups where, you know, you have to put the money in there and it stays there for uh, a certain amount of time and you've got some vesting period and then the tokens you get are also locked up investing. And I think that is the general direction that we're seeing the newer yield farm stuff go where you have to lock up tokens and you have to take a, a duration risk on your assets. And so you have to be willing to commit your capital and say, you know what, if there's a, a blow up or a smart contract hack over the next six months, my capital is committed. I'm not going to be able to, to get that out right away. And uh, that, will, that will lower you know, the interest in your farming, of course, but it will better align the incentives of the uh, people coming into the protocol. And it will avoid this situation where you've just got so much money depending on this high APY that you know the minute you lower it, it's all going to tank. You know, the minute that Luna lowers this interest rate or the minute that somebody else comes out with a higher interest rate than them, you can have all this capital fleeing the system and that potentially puts pressure on the price of Luna and, and triggers a sort of uh, a collapse there. So, I mean, they, they've really got a, a difficult problem uh, uh, ahead of them to keep this interest rate up and, and sort of avoid that unwind of the system. And I guess for those investors looking to uh, spread their portfolio and kind of maybe go to what, what could maybe be an OG, we'll say is urine, right? They recently launched an, on Arbitrum. What are the benefits there for users? Yeah, so the, the biggest benefit for Arbitrum is going to be the, the very low fees compared to Ethereum. Uh, whereas Ethereum, just, just withdrawing from a, from a urine vault is going to cost you, you know, 30 upwards of a few hundred dollars sometimes, depending on the gas fees. And so if you're using this as like a savings account, like a liquid savings account, which is what it really was designed to be, uh, you're going to have to have a very large account for these fees to, to make it worth it. Otherwise, you're going to, you know, the interest that you're getting is not going to pay off these fees. So Arbitrum, the Arbitrum deployment is really going to help out the smaller accounts that you know you want to put a few grand in here and you want to be able to withdraw a hundred bucks a month and those fees are are going to be negligible compared to you know the interest you're getting so it really opens up the door to uh, the long tail of investors there are also newer projects that are launching on arbitrum that these vaults are going to get exposure to so potentially you're going to see um, higher sustained apys on arbitrum versus the ethereum mainnet now, it remains to be seen which roll-up is going to get the most activity. Um, and, and whichever one does, that's generally where you're going to want to locate your funds to, to do the yield farming. Um, but Arbitrum looks like it's taking the lead right now. And, and Yearn deploying there, I think, is a big step for Arbitrum. Um, it really signals to a lot of the, the developer community that this, uh, this network is going to have a lot of the infrastructure they need to deploy on. Um, you know, for example, uh, the Alchemix project, they just launched a V2, uh, but that project depends on Yearn because 
they basically deposit your money into Yearn and then front you the the future interest. Um, so you kind of take a loan, you know, against that that future interest. Um, but they can only deploy on chains where where Yearn has already deployed. So now that and so now Alchemix can deploy on Arbitrum. And you're going to just see a snowball effect of more and more projects coming in as their dependencies get deployed there. Um, so I would say, you know, get some funds over to Arbitrum, start playing around with it. Um, if, if you're a urine user, try out their vaults and uh, just keep an eye out on, on the opportunities there because it looks like, you know, we're, we're sort of ready for an L2 summer. <laughs> well, how are the, uh, the rates people could expect? on Arbitrum and how do you see those risk factors compared to like maybe Luna or other projects? Yeah. So right now the biggest vault uh on your Arbitrum, I believe, is the 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 curve uh three pool vault. And so that it's the same it's the same idea as the three pool vault on uh on Ethereum layer one. And that's where you deposit liquidity in their um uh, you know, their, their pool that has DAI, uh, uh, USDT, Tether, and USDC. So the risks of depositing in that liquidity pool are that if any one of those DPEGs, um, you are going to realize that entire DPEG of that whole pool. So if, so if DAI takes a minus 30%, it doesn't matter that you've got these other two tokens in there, the whole thing will take a minus 30%, just the way that arbitragers will sell into the pool and, and lower their reserves. Uh, if one of them goes to zero, the whole thing goes to zero. So that's really the risk is that you're you're sort of leveraging up on stablecoin DPEG risk. Um, but those three stablecoins have been around for a long time. They're tried and tested, highly audited. The only one I would really have concerns about is Tether just because of the uh, transparency issues around their reserves. Um, but you can you can also you know hedge against that. You can borrow tether, right? You can deposit some USDC somewhere, borrow tether, and then use that to deposit in the pool. So if you're really worried about that, there are ways around it. Um, so on Arbitrum, you're going to get that uh, liquidity pool uh, trading fees. You're also going to get the curve uh, governance tokens, which you know it sort of it sort of blows through this middle protocol called convex finance that it, it kind of boosts the uh, rewards for um, liquidity providers. But that all gets wrapped up for you. You don't have to worry about all that detail. All you have to know is that you're exposed to these stablecoin DPEG risks. And then you deposit it in the urine vault on Arbitrum and you're going to get anywhere from 5 to 10% APY in that range, which is a bit better than what you would get on Ethereum layer one right now, which is you know, around the 3 to 5% APY range for like USDC and, and DAI. So you're going to get a little bit of boost in rewards, and you're also going to have lower fees. It's it's a win-win. Um, I expect to see a lot of money flowing over to that vault in, in the near term. Now, when some when people are getting these rewards, what are they typically pay back in? Are they uh, pay back in the liquidity tokens that you provided, or are they also in some of the airdrops that they're farming? Yeah. So I mean, it's a mix. The the vault will get extra liquidity tokens at, from the trading fees, and then it will eventually. You know the vault managers will redeem those for um, whatever token you put in there. So if you put in the USDC vault, you know they're going to get some USDC out of that and add it to the reserves of the vault, so that you can withdraw USDC later. Um, and then the the curve tokens, whatever whatever yield farming governance tokens they're going to get, uh, they're going to sell those into whatever stablecoin um, you deposited. So for the investor, it's it's totally hands off. You deposit USDC, you get USDC back. 
in, in interest. So it really just makes it nice and easy for you to get a, a return. Yeah, you are giving up a you know a few percent APY uh, compared to doing it yourself, but having that auto compounding, you know, not having to to worry about it. I can't I can't tell you how many times I've forgotten to claim a farm, you know, and and, and compound my rewards. And if I if I had done it, you know, like daily, for instance, you know, assuming the fees weren't that bad, then my APY would actually be a lot higher than my effective compounding rate, which is you know probably monthly or something. So having having that managed for you is very nice. So you might actually come out positive, come out ahead if you try to do it yourself. So basically, you're paying the protocol. They're taking a percentage of the cut for managing the process. Right. Yeah. They they take I think two percent of that APY uh, for themselves, and then the rest goes on to you. Um, and there used to be withdrawal fees. There used to be a zero point five percent withdrawal fee, but they don't do that anymore. So you can you can deposit and withdraw into these vaults as often as you want and just accumulate the interest as you're in there. All right. And otherwise, for those that don't want to obviously do DeFi, they could always jump into a program like BlockFi or maybe Celsius Network or Nexo. And and sometimes they're taking the responsibility for any internal losses they may have. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, these companies so far, they've been covering any any of the losses like the, the Badger Dow hack that we covered. You know, Celsius took full responsibility for that. And they covered the, the the users' funds. No no users lost anything. So, yeah, as long as you trust these companies to do a good job, then um, you're going to get that interest rate as well. And they're basically doing the same thing on the back end. They're depositing in urine. They're depositing in these different farms here and there, so they can kind of give you that diversified yield farming portfolio um, for you. Uh, again, you're going to pay fees to them, or they're going to take a cut of that rate. But so far, the rates have been pretty reasonable compared to what you get on on DeFi. So um, they're they're doing a pretty good job there. And so yeah, as long as you trust these companies, um, then it, it's a fine alternative. Well, let's leave off with a lot. You know, just hit on to close out the day is obviously you know all markets have been somewhat heated with real estate inflation. You know, we have the war over Russia. Uh, you know, it's tax time. Ultimately, how are you looking at this market and how are you navigating for 2022, you know, on today's opinion? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we've got some 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 large forces at play here in the market. Um, on one hand, we've got the the adoption narrative that we're talking about here. The the people in Ukraine, the people in Russia, the, the protesters around the world that are that are realizing that Bitcoin and crypto offer you a a, a well-working alternative financial system to, to store your wealth and to send money and to, to have financial services like lending and uh, borrowing. Um, that There's a lot of awareness that is building around that. I mean, it's hard to put metrics on it, but just watching social media and watching you know popular sentiment, um, I would say that right now that people are more positive on crypto as an alternative financial system than ever before. Um, it's really shining very brightly in, in all of the, the dark things going on around the world. Um, and so this is definitely a bullish headwind for crypto. We also have, of course, fears about a recession in, in the markets. And I think those are totally valid. I mean, how can you have an a, a, a incredibly growing economy when you've got oil exports getting messed up and you know all these commodity problems and sanctions, and you've got a reduction in stimulus money, um, you know, just a lot of different financial 
uh, uh, conditions this year compared to last year, or really last two years, we're sort of kind of taking away all, all of the government support that the market's had over the last two years and, and then seeing how it goes. Um, that, that also goes with the, the, the Fed raising interest rates um, where they're trying to fight inflation. And then we've also got this crazy high inflation going on, which is not good for markets either. So all of these problems in the macroeconomic landscape do ha- do present a problem for the growth of crypto because you're you're going to potentially have a lot of forced selling. You're going to have people that they bought a, too big of a house and their mortgage is too expensive and now they lost their job because of the recession and they're going to have to sell their house. Um, and that means they're going to have to raise money from their investment accounts and sell crypto. Um, so there's going to be a lot of things like that going on that could potentially cause a lot of forced selling of crypto. I don't think people want to sell crypto. I don't think I don't think all the people that got in last year, even if they bought the highs, I don't think they are distasteful of crypto. Maybe a few of them, but for the most part, <laughs> it seems like the sentiment is that people love crypto and they love the ideals there and that they're in it for the long term and that they're having a lot of fun. I mean, you know, even people that lost money on NFTs, like they're still having fun. They're still sort of uh, realizing the potential here. And so we've just grown the user base a lot. And that does reflect in the market caps of the crypto assets. But if they're forced to sell for financial hardship, then yeah, we could see more downside on the markets. The other problem is that we've got potentially a lot of tax selling coming up. So a lot of people who you know, generate a lot of taxes last year could end up in a, in a really tough situation where um, they over leverage themselves and now they're sitting on a minus 50% from the highs for last year on their portfolio or worse, if they were all in altcoins, they're, they're like minus 80% for, for altcoins. So uh, they generated a bunch of taxes from the trading of last year. Because, you know, say they bought Bitcoin um, at one price and then Bitcoin went up and they traded that for Ether. Well, that generated a capital gain, even though they might not realize it at the time. And now when they're calculating their taxes for April, they're realizing they owe all this money to the IRS and they can't offset their losses from this year to last year. So they're going to be forced to sell that crypto to pay the taxes. Um, and, and the same thing goes for NFTs. Everyone that made money on NFTs last year, potentially they're going to have capital gains if they, they sold any NFTs. Um, so the tax selling could be pretty substantial this year. Um, I think that we've probably gotten through a, a good bit of it already. I imagine some of the downside, some of the selling that's been going on over the last month or so has been tax selling. So it's hard to say uh, when that's going to be over. But historically, March has been one of the worst months for crypto. And, and come every March, people start talking about the same thing. Oh, it's tax selling. You know, you better watch out. March is not a good month. Um, sell in January and come back in the summer or something like that is, you know, one, one of the themes. So, you know, we'll we'll see. It's not a guarantee, but it's just another force at play that is, you know, countering the potential adoption trend. Now, what I will say is that on the long-term horizon, uh, we have this exponential technology adoption trend going on that looks just like the, the, the graphs you saw of the number of smartphone users or the number of inter- internet users. You know, technology these days is just really viral and it can reach all different edges of the world in the span of a couple years. You know, I mean, the fact that we have people in rural India trading NFTs <laughs> is mind blowing, even though this stuff is only like a year old. So 
Um, the, the pace of technology adoption just happens much faster now. And crypto being as useful as it is to people is following a, a similar trend. And so that really gives it a very positive growth trend that stands out amongst the macro economy that probably is going to have a dismal growth trend over the next couple of years, if not negative, right? We might see some negative GDP growth um, in the United States and Europe. So if you're looking for a place that is going to have returns and is going to have fundamental growth um, to what gives these assets value, I think crypto is the place to be. I, I don't know anywhere else where I want to put my money that has as strong of a fundamental growth trend than crypto. So I am totally fine holding through downside this year. Um, I'm, I'm focusing my portfolio on long-term positions and projects that I really think have a strong growth trend underlying them and a strong product and a strong team that continues to grind through the bear market. And I'm focusing less on flipping things, you know, less on, on following the coin of the day on Twitter and things like that. Like you really have to tune out a lot of that noise and just focus on a small handful of, of, of cryptocurrencies and, and tokens that you think really have fundamental value and, and have strong growth trends going on. And I will say that I, I do have a shopping list of tokens. And I think every investor this year should have their shopping list of projects that you like that maybe you don't have as much as you want invested, or maybe you don't have anything invested, but you're watching these projects and you know, you've got it on your CoinGecko watch list or your Masari watch list. And the more that the markets go down, you start nibbling on these. And so I've been nibbling on a couple coins over the last month or so, and I've got a good amount of cash that I can continue to nibble on these for the rest of the year so that I set myself up for a very good 2023-2024 as the bear market kind of pulls back and we go back to the strong bull cycle that under that is, you know, precipitated by this underlying growth trend. Yeah, a guy posted the other day about uh, the miser and his gold. I don't know if you've seen that on Twitter, but basically the guy would go out to his backyard, check on his gold every day, so forth, and make sure it's still there. And then to shorten the story, you know, someone was watching and stole his gold, right? And then people came by and asked about his gold. And he was like, well, I just liked looking at it and accumulating it. You know, I was never going to spend it, right? I mean, to the extent that we should all take a step back away from our computers in the crypto industry sometimes and also actually spend uh, some of the earnings and not be so glued to the price on a daily basis and zoom out dollar cost average your portfolio and know that your wealth is growing in the background and ultimately just pick the best projects that are going to have millions of users. I mean, if the project's going to have millions of users in three to five years, you're more likely to be in a winner. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, look at, looking at the, the TAM, the total addressable, total addressable market, and the, the number of users that are adopting the product uh, and, and the growth there, that's going to be key to identifying the, these projects that are really going to be worth something. And you know, to, to your, to your uh, analogy, to your story there, um, at some point, you, know, you do want to use your money, right? You don't just sit there and accumulate <laughs> for the purpose of accumulating. So you know, whether that's spending crypto or, or uh, you know, you're, you're borrowing against it, or you're having fun with NFTs, anything like that. I mean, have some fun, people. It's not all about the, the number on the screen at the end of the day. All right, well, I appreciate it again. Let's leave off there. Everybody, please 
like, subscribe, turn on your notifications. Also, if you want to follow Justin or myself, our Twitter handles are below. Please click there, you know, follow us on Twitter. And you know, Justin, thanks again for joining us today. Thanks for having me. The Joe Roberts Show.